This is Black Lines and Billables, a podcast about legal technology and innovation and law firm associate success and development. I'm Christian Lang, editor of the Black Lines and Billables blog, and today I'm very excited to be joined by a true luminary on the legal tech landscape, Ed Walters. For those of you immersed in the world of legal tech and innovation, Ed likely needs no introduction. But for the rest, Ed is the CEO and co-founder of FastCase, the online legal research software company that, under Ed's leadership, has broken the Lexis and Westlaw legal research duopoly and grown to become one of the largest online legal publishers in the world. A former big law lawyer and White House speechwriter, in addition to running FastCase, Ed is an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law and Cornell Tech. And thanks to his incisive perspective on some of the greatest challenges looming for the lawyers of tomorrow, he's a fixture in key conversations about the future of the legal profession and the implications for an evolving legal industry of the revolutionary technological change we're experiencing in the world today. I've been lucky enough to hear Ed speak on those topics several times at various conferences, and in an echo chamber-like legal tech ecosystem that often feels starved for original thinking, When it comes to analyzing the change we're struggling to make sense of and prepare for as lawyers, in my experience, Ed either says it first or says it best. We recently crossed paths at the College of Law Practice Management's annual Futures Conference down in Atlanta, which was focused this year on artificial intelligence. As part of a panel on, quote, the perilous ethical waters of AI, Ed shared a bit about the important conversations he's incubating among the next generation of legal scholars at Georgetown with a course entitled The Law of Robots. Having gotten a flavor for Ed's take on a range of fascinating topics in that area, I wanted members of the Black Lines and Billables community to be aware of and a part of that ongoing dialogue, so I invited Ed to join us for a quick chat exploring AI, robots, the future of legal work, and wherever else the conversation takes us. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Christian, that's an awesome introduction. It's a... It's great to join you. Uh, based on the intro, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's begin. Let's let's lay some groundwork um, for our audience, some of whom won't be following the development of AI particularly closely, and talk a little bit about where we currently stand in the arc of development of artificial intelligence and autonomous machines. And as a way to get at that question, it's my understanding that the Law of Robots course is predicated upon a worldview about what's happening in, with the development of AI and where we currently stand and what that means for us in the short and longer terms. So why don't we begin by having you tell us a little bit about where the course came from and why you thought it was important. Yeah, so uh, one day I was taking the train to New York from D.C. Um, and I saw a friend of mine, Tanina Rostein, who is a law professor at Georgetown. And uh, we were just kind of shooting the breeze. And I said to her, you know, I have this idea for a course at Georgetown. Um, and in a couple of years, when things settle down at Fast Case, I will like work with you to kind of pitch it to the faculty. But the idea is that law students who are graduating from school now will enter a world that is changing so much faster than it did when she and I graduated from law school. I graduated in 1996, right? So if you're graduating from law school in 2017, 2018, 2019, the world is going to change so much faster than it did back then. And there's no course in law school that teaches law students how to prepare for that. What do you do when you're a young associate um, or when you're a young lawyer and the world changes so fast? When legal education has this kind of Langdellian, conservative uh, mindset, right? And so I said, you know, it would be great to take some topic that changes quickly, like robotics, for example, and teach uh, how those changing facts challenge lawyers, right? 
have them analyze when you should rotely apply common law to new facts, rotely apply existing statutes to new facts, or to reason by analogy to things that have come in the past. And when you should instead say, those won't work, that you have to create new laws to deal with new facts. And to, to sort of take a, an example, in, in this case maybe robotics, and to walk people through like the different challenges these new technologies pose, right? And so she said, that's a great idea. Um, that would be a really good class. You know, um, we should talk more about it. So two days later, uh, she called me and said, hey, good news. I talked to the dean. You've got your class. You start <laughs> teaching in six weeks. Right? Uh, that's great. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I don't have time to, to teach or put together a syllabus or do anything, really. Um, you know, I was thinking a couple of years from now. She said, no, no, no. It's right now. Uh, this is the time to do it. So I went to talk to my wife about it uh, that night, and I said, look, you know, I've got this interesting opportunity to teach at Georgetown. I, I'm, I'm going to say no. Like, I just don't have time to do it. I'm going to do it badly. Um, I don't want to screw this up. My wife said, you fool. <laughs> You're never going to get the opportunity to teach at Georgetown again. Take the class. You'll figure it out. And she was right. Um, so that's, that's kind of how Law of Robots came about. That's fantastic. I think th those sorts of... Uh, kind of revised and renewed like pedagogical approaches are super important. It's not at all the same thing, but I had an international law professor in law school who forbade us from taking notes because he's like, international law is always changing. You don't, I'm not going to teach you black letter law. You need to learn how to teach yourself. So here's three topics. Pick two. I'll teach you those in class. The final is going to be exclusively on the third one. And when I left law school, even that first summer, it, more than any other course is probably the one I found affecting the way that I think. So to your point, what you're talking about, having this kind of purpose-based approach, like what is the law trying to achieve and how do we get there? It sounds fascinating anyway. Yeah, I had, this, um, I had this great art teacher in high school, Beverly Wilson, and she said on the first day of class, um, she wrote on the board, Saper, we dare. She said, most of you come to my class thinking that you are going to learn how to draw or to paint. And you'll do those things, right? You'll be a better artist and a better painter and a better sketch artist at the end of my class. But that's not what I'm going to teach you. I'm going to teach you this, soccer we dare, to learn to see. Because even though you're a better painter and a better sketch artist at the end of the semester, you will see the world entirely differently. You'll see negative space where you didn't before. You'll see hue and value and light and shadow and color in completely different ways. And that's the kind of spirit that I want to bring to Law of Robots. Yes, we will study robotics and the change in technology. We'll study artificial intelligence and the challenges it poses to law. But most importantly, students in the class will see the entire world differently. They will see, uh, you know, certainly thinking machines in places they hadn't seen them before where we kind of ignore them. But also they will see a world that changes and how law deals with that change, you know, how we keep up with it, what our responsibility is as a profession to understand the world around us and to make sure that our law reflects that, right? And so that's, that's really what I'm trying to do in this Law of Robots class. It's been a blast. Um, this is my fourth semester teaching it. Um, in the spring, I'm going to teach it at Cornell Tech slightly differently. That's going to be cross-listed between the law school, the business school, and the computer science department. And so it'll be a, you know, maybe a slightly different take on the same subject, maybe a little less law, a little more policy, maybe a little less pedagogy, and maybe a little more code. Um, but 
Yeah, that's that's at least the idea behind the law of robots. Very, very interesting, and I can I'm excited. I always I, I see a setup for a related kind of meta conversation because when we when we get to the end of this conversation, talk a little bit about the future of work, the skills you're describing as to how lawyers can look at the world and, and understand what kind of needs to happen and why will hopefully help them find areas where they can add human value as opposed to things that are just done can be done algorithmically. So, uh, so to set the stage for, for kind of a, a, a tangible discussion about the challenges raised by or the implications raised by kind of autonomous machines and artificial intelligence, let's talk about from a historical perspective why this is so important now. And one of the most interesting kind of tidbits that for me as a layperson, you know, a year and a half ago trying to start to get my mind around this, um, when I, the first time I heard somebody talk about Moore's Law and what that means and why all these... Why now is this becoming such an interesting and pressing concern? Um, that, that made it very tangible for me and helped me latch on to it. So will you say a few words about, from a technological perspective, why now is such an important time to be having these conversations? Yeah. Uh, so this will be a play in like three acts. Uh, Moore's Law, for those who don't know, uh, was kind of postulated by Intel co-founder Gordon Moore, who in 1965 theorized, really guessed, that the number of transistors that would fit on a chip would double. So chip size would be cut in half uh, every 18 months to two years. And that the processing power of the chip would double in that time, and the price would be cut by half, right? And so um, people said at the time, yes, maybe trivially true for a few years, but not really much more than that. But it has been the law of the land for 50 years now, right? And every five years or so, Computer scientists or theoretical physicists will say we're reaching the end of Moore's law. You can't get any smaller. You can't get any faster. And then you know scientists will come up with some way of you know printing data on carbon or something. And you know we Moore's law continues unabated. And so that that really has been the the kind of the truth of computing ever since 1965. So that has really interesting implications. One of those is that our machines get smarter and faster. But you know, when, when, when Gordon Moore said doubling, when people say that the chip speed and price uh, and size are changing exponentially, they don't mean like really fast, right? They mean like on a curve that slopes in a very radical vertical way. I can't show it on a podcast, but trust me when I say that you get to a point where the growth becomes almost vertical, right? If it continues to double. At some point, it has to level off, but we're on a very steep part of that curve right now. So AI has a long history. Over like 60 years now, it has gone like kind of boom and bust. And there are many computer scientists who say we're right on the precipice of another bust, right, where uh, the, the hype around artificial intelligence um, kind of cancels itself out, right? It can't possibly live up to it and then is seen as a big disappointment. This happened in the 60s, it happened in the 80s. Some computer scientists say we're right on the cusp of it again. Then there's the other half of computer scientists who say no, this time is different. And what's different is the chip speed is much greater. The data that we have available to feed into AI is much greater. Right now we have the internet, we have Wikipedia, we have these huge big data sets that you can feed into it so you can, you can train AI with much more than ever. And then finally, the, the capacity for machine learning and deep learning, the techniques are different and better. I'll give you just you know, one quick example of that. 
Um, there are these famous kind of micro world experiments where like uh, Deep Blue, the chess playing computer, beats Gary Kasparov. IBM Watson beats Ken Jenning and Brad Rutter in uh, Jeopardy, right? But so machine learning adds a different dimension to that. A couple of years ago, a team at Google set out to beat Lee Sedol in the game Go. Go is a strategy game, but it's different from chess. Chess is a brute force game. You can computationally win chess. If you can process enough possibilities, enough moves forward, you can always beat the best grandmaster in chess, just by brute force, mm -hmm. right? So Go doesn't play that way. There are more moves in Go, there are more potential moves in Go than there are atoms in the universe, right? So you can't brute force Go, at least not yet. So there is a, a LeBron James of Go named Lee Sedol, and Google challenged him. He's kind of like the Gary Kasparov of Go. And they expected to lose, as you know, um, Deep Blue did the first couple of times it played Kasparov. But they didn't. They won the first time around. Their, Google's program AlphaGo played the game and beat the best human player of Go in the world which was an accomplishment. It was amazing. They spent years like kind of training up the software to play the game. So even in that short amount of time, in the last couple of years, the computer scientists at Google said, I wonder what would happen if we tried just pure machine learning, right? So they set up two uh, Go playing machines. They called this AlphaGo Zero. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're not going to even program the rules of Go into them. We're going to let them play the game so they can move randomly. And they can see when pieces get removed from the board, and they can see when they win or lose. So we're going to basically set uh, AlphaGo Zero to play itself in Go uh, very quickly. So it played like 500,000 games, and over the course of those games, learned the rules itself, learned how to win itself, learned strategies itself. Uh, and they took this kind of self-taught, machine learning generated uh, Go program, AlphaGo Zero, and they had it compete against the machine they had trained, uh, the original AlphaGo. A hundred games, AlphaGo Zero won all 100, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we're reaching a point now where um, machines can begin to teach themselves. And uh, it doesn't necessarily replace human intelligence, it doesn't even do very well all the things that human intelligence can. But in the past, there were these horizons where brute force machines could do better than people, right? Things like chess or calculators, mm -hmm. right? Now we're getting to a point where it's not even just brute force, right? This is not general artificial intelligence, but a different kind of intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's a, a kind of a self-taught intelligence. AlphaGo Zero makes moves that humans can't even understand. We look at the board and say, I don't know why AlphaGo Zero did that. Yeah, I, rec I recall dur during the, the first iteration, the least at all matches, apparently it was like in game four, the computer made a completely unorthodox move that would yes. be ridiculed if a human being had made it. Right. Um, and least at all had no idea yeah. why it made that. Well, so we're, we're at a point now where um, moves or decisions dictated by artificial intelligence and machine learning really can't be explained back, right? And that raises all kinds of interesting uh, legal challenges and uh, legal complications. I think about, for example, like a, a machine learning-based hiring decision. 
how do you know it's not biased? How do you know there's not some implicit or algorithmic bias in that decision, especially if the machine can't tell you why it made that decision? And especially if it's being based on historical data, which is almost necessarily biased or right. inherently biased in many ways. Exactly right. And so I think you know, data scientists would tell you right now there's this real tension between the completeness of a data set. To, to really train these machines, you have to have a lot of data. And so complete data sets are important. Uh, and algorithmic bias. The more complete your data set it is, the more bias it's likely to have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and the more unbiased your data set is, the less complete it is. And so you know, we'll have this tension for years. It's impossible to find an unbiased data set. Mm -hmm. There's always some bias in there. And you have to, in the absence of using the most complete data set, you have to make normative decisions about what you want the world to look like. But then you know, who makes those decisions? And this, 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 I think, dovetails with a discussion we'll have maybe about self-driving cars and regulation. Um, before we get there, this is also an interesting segue to one last point just to kind of set the table. Um, let's, let's have a bit of a maybe a sanity check moment. You mentioned that computer scientists right now kind of split roughly into two camps where you have people who think we're on the verge of a bust and people who think that something is different this time. What, what is the crux of the disagreement? And, and relatedly, what are the key limitations, as you understand them, of artificial intelligence? So, for example, you talked about the, the algorithms training themselves to play Go, which at one level seems fascinating and unbelievable and a little bit scary. On, on the other hand, you know, I went to a, a, a talk recently with one of the project leads at Facebook's AI lab, and they're talking about the fascinating adaptive learning technologies they're developing, and people in the audience are like, well, why can't it do this? Why can't it do that? And, <laughs> and, and the project lead, she's explaining to us, well, look, it can do all these actions, but it only can test one at a time. And then we have to create a reward vector that reflects the outcome and says what is a win, what's not a win. And so you, it's, not, it's not a generalized technology you can just throw at any old problem. It has to be kind of tailored very narrowly for specific problems. Within those narrow channels, it's incredibly powerful and can do the sorts of things that you're describing. I mean, is that the crux of the – do people think there's a, a, um, a categorical change that would need to happen to the way we – compute or the way we code in order to allow a more generalized artificial intelligence? Or what, what is the crux of the, of the difference between these two camps? Yeah, I, I would just say that, um, you know, we're really early right now. We're really at the dawn of this. Even though artificial intelligence has been around for quite some time, uh, machine learning techniques are really new. And so I think just cognitively, we humans uh, want to extrapolate. Right? So we look at a machine that beats uh, Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter at Jeopardy. Right? And we say to ourselves, gosh, I couldn't beat Ken Jennings or Brad Rutter at Jeopardy. Therefore, this machine is smarter than I am and must be able to do everything that I do more and better. I mean, that's not true, right? I mean, this is a micro world experiment. When they played Jeopardy, actually, they had to build the Jeopardy set at IBM. Right, for a carefully controlled experiment, <laughs> right? Strong AI, generalized AI, the AI that would learn the way a kid does, picking up things like balance and language and understanding and humor and empathy all at the same time, you know, we could be very far away from that. There are some very smart computer scientists who say we're more than 100 years away from that. So uh, one computer science term that you'll hear thrown around a lot is the singularity, right? 
the singularity, depending on who you ask, has a lot of definitions. But I think there's a consensus around the idea that the singularity is reached at the point in time where the exponential growth of intelligence, of computing power, goes practically vertical. And I don't, I don't really think about one singularity, right? I, I almost don't like the name because it sounds like a single event, like a point in time where suddenly, <laughs> like on March 10th, you know, 2021, Skynet, um, you know, uh, achieves self-awareness and sends uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger back in time to kill us all, right? Um, I think about a number of singularities, so some of which we've already crossed. So like the math singularity. Machines are already way better than we are at math. Uh, they can do brute force calculations in a way that we can't. You know, done, right? Um, e-discovery. We have passed the singularity. Um, e-discovery is much better and more effective with machines than it ever was with human review. Higher accuracy, higher recall. Um, and it's only going to get better, right? So what happens after the singularity? Do we still teach kids math? Of course we do, right? That's really important. People still play chess. Uh, in fact, the best chess players in the world um, are centaurs, people who are working in conjunction with machines. This was Gary Kasparov's great insight. Uh, Kasparov plus Deep Blue can beat the best Deep Blue chess playing program in the world. So I, I'm really interested in these post singularity events. What do we do when e-discovery software is better than people? Does that mean there are fewer lawyers? Mm -hmm. Actually, no, there's more lawyers. But they're practicing at the top of their degree, right? So you don't have... When I was a lawyer in 1997 and 98, my law firm, Covington & Burling, was doing the ExxonMobil merger. And they built a loading dock behind the firm so that 24-7, 365, for 18 months... 18-wheelers would pull up, unload a, a cargo trailer full of boxes of documents into basically an entire building that was reserved for document review. And that 18-wheeler would pull away empty and a full 18-wheeler would pull in right behind <laughs> it, right? And they did that for 18 months. So that employed a ton of people. Those people were miserable. Man, nobody wanted to be those guys, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't do that anymore. The information... Uh, from all those 18-wheelers could fit on a 10-terabyte hard drive now, the size of a paperback novel. Um, who is ruining that? Nobody. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to do e-discovery. So we're past the singularity in discovery, right? E-discovery has won. It's over, right? Um, you might have a handful of like very bespoke projects where you want to do it with human review. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want humans to train the machine learning algorithm, the reinforced learning from certain e-discovery products, right? But we're post-singularity, and nobody is worse off. People are much, much better off, actually. Clients are much better off, certainly, because it's less expensive. We can do things that we couldn't do before, do them cheaper. And lawyers don't have to spend 18 months, you know, up to their waist in cardboard. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely loved my diligence days. <laughs> All right, well, let's put a pin in that because th there's some really interesting um, knock-on implications of that that I, I want to come back to at the end. Um, for the kind of the next segment of the discussion, 
you raised a really fascinating issue where AI can start, you know, or, or automation, in, smarter automation or autonomous machines or however you want to think about it can do some really fascinating things. They might be able to add huge amounts of value in our world, but we might not have the ability to fully understand them, to fully control how it works in a, in a very manual way that allows us to make choices that reflect our values, um, which raises some really interesting legal questions, ethical questions, moral questions um, that we as lawyers need to be thinking about, and I think this is largely the point of your class, about what does this mean from a regulatory perspective, what actions need to be taken now, what actions can be taken now. So let's talk a little bit about that and what you see as kind of like the most pressing regulatory challenges that are facing us or the ones that we can deal with today. Um, and I would be very happy to take this in whatever direction you like, but as a, as a jumping off point for the non-lawyers in the audience um, who maybe have not grappled with this basic kind of ethical framework before, let's, let's lay some very quick framework talking about the, the so-called trolley car problem. Um, which is something we all know and love from our torch class first year of law school. <laughs> right. right. So um, there's some really interesting conversations about this right now. Um, the, the hypothetical goes a number of different ways. Imagine for a second you're in a self-driving car, uh, and the self-driving car is pulling onto a bridge. Um, and through no fault of anybody's, uh, there is a mechanical breakdown. Something pops off the bridge and falls into a lane of traffic, Right. So that self-driving car has three options and only three options. Uh, it can swerve into oncoming traffic and hit head-on a school bus full of kids, probabilistically hurting or killing some number of them, but not certainly, right? Let's call it a 70% chance of a loss of human life, mm -hmm. maybe one, um, and then like a 80% chance of injuries. Or that car can pull off onto the kind of shoulder lane and hit two nuns uh, walking in the opposite direction, certainly killing them both. Or the car can pull off the bridge altogether and fall a thousand feet into the river below, certainly killing the human driver of the car, mm -hmm. right? These are the only three options. This is like the Kobayashi Maru of self-driving cars. There's no right answer, right? What does the car do? And so, you know, right now, people who are engineers who are designing the operating systems for self-driving cars don't have any guidance. If you are Google working in the Waymo division, like trying to figure out what the car should do, there aren't, there aren't really good guidelines societally, ethically, legally that tell you what that car should do. If, you, if you're trying to save the most lives, for sure, right? The, the answer is simple. You drive the car right off the bridge. You mm -hmm. kill the driver, right? But if you build a car that doesn't save the life of the driver, no one buys that car, <laughs> right? True. You'll never have self-driving cars. It would stifle innovation. Um, if, you, uh, if you hit the school bus and kill a bunch of kids, you have a PR disaster, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have injured way more people than the driver, Right? If you kill the nuns, oh my gosh, these are nuns. Like, what kind of jerk does that? Um, but, you know, it's the smallest number of people who are not the driver. You can make a case for each one of them. There's no right answer. Um, I think that the, the most important thing is there's no law that really tells us or guideline that tells us what the software should do. In fact, I think the only law in the field 
is uh, the law that Google and Waymo have to protect shareholder value, mm -hmm. right? So with computational power, the software might be required to calculate the net present value of the future stream of clicks of all of the kids in the school bus versus the AdWords return on uh, ads on the blog that the nuns run mm -hmm. uh, versus the number of things that the person buys from uh, Google stores uh, who's driving the car. I mean, I'm being facetious, right? But there's, there really isn't any other kind of guideline for them to follow right now. Yeah. Well, what is the yardstick? And, and I guess I would be curious... So circling back to the beginning of the conversation, to a distinction you were drawing between situations where we can be applying the so-called old law or the traditional law and legal principles to new facts versus kind of like needing new law. In these sorts of scenarios, what do we need from an ethical perspective and from a legal perspective? Like how do we go about dealing with this under a traditional under the traditional kind of torts rubric of the common law of the U.S. and England, you might look to notions of kind of culpability and causation and who is responsible. And that's really important not only to allocate um, responsibility from a moral perspective, but also ensure that benefits and costs are being brought to bear in the same place so that rational decisions can be made about how to move forward. Um, how do you see that, th that dichotomy you set up, how do you see that in this context and, and what can we do as lawyers what do we need to be doing to try to deal with the scenario that's a great question uh, Christian the you know the the torts based uh, reimbursement scheme if someone is hurt through no fault of their own um, in a car accident we look at torts you know we look at negligent behavior and we try to have the tort system restore the person who is injured you know to the position they were in before the accident we're looking in a self-driving car future at a world where you'll have tons of accidents, hopefully fewer, right? But accidents where there's no negligence involved at all, right? Where there's, you know, where the car does exactly what it should do, where the software operates exactly the way it should. And those things combined, you know, maybe cut the number of auto fatalities in half. You go from 40,000 fatalities a year in the U.S. to 20,000. That's great. That's like almost explicitly non-negligent, right? But you'll nonetheless still have like 20,000 fatalities that are caused by cars and software doing exactly what they're programmed to do, designed to save lives and saving lives. So they're not negligent. There's no recovery in tort. But what do you say to someone who is hurt in that accident, right? Do you sue for products liability? It's a much harder suit to bring. Mm -hmm. And so when you routinely apply existing law to those circumstances, when you try with tort law or products liability law to seek recovery for people, it just breaks down, yeah. right? And so there's a lot of people who are saying we should move to a no-fault regime, kind of like workers' comp or something, or to um, you know, a giant insurance pool approach where there's you know, just no-fault insurance that everyone carries. When you buy your self-driving car, you buy into an insurance pool that compensates people whenever they're hurt without having to show negligence, right? And of course, you still have tort. Like if people act negligently or if there is a you know, bad design for the software, you can still recover that way. But where you can't show that, you would still be able to recover in some way. And I think it's interesting. Insurance doesn't really know yet how to handle self-driving cars. So one of the newest entrants in the insurance market is Tesla. 
Elon Musk has said, I don't trust car insurance companies to be able to price the risk correctly. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to overcharge for the risk of self-driving cars. So I'll start my own insurance company with more information and price risk differently. <laughs> That's fascinating. I mean, it's really, so just to put a finer point on, or just to kind of reiterate some of those principles. So under the existing regime, where there's no fault involved, that we our, our rubric is generally the losses kind of lie where they fall. It's, you know, it's your bad luck, yep. it's your bad luck, you bear the cost. From a moral perspective, we might think that that's unacceptable. But yet we're looking at a world where um, we have this massive opportunity to promote good and to reduce harm. Um, but it will, there will be attendant harms that just necessarily come along with it. So it's almost analyzing it through the lens of like, like public goods, the way we think about public goods that benefit us all, that you know, are kind of outside the market. But, but instead, it's on the cost side of the ledger here. It's like a public cost. And to your point about an insurance scheme, at the end of the day, Costs on an insurance scheme are down to the insured. I mean, they're the ones who end up picking up the tab for that. Whereas in this, how, how does this work in this in, in a commercialization and capitalist economy perspective, where you have the Googles of the world reaping the economic benefits of this scheme? I mean, we, we obviously more people stay alive, so we all get benefits from yeah. it. But then, how do you start to allocate those costs? And there isn't there's a bit of a hazard issue here, right? Because where the if the costs are being borne in a different place and the benefits are being generated. Who's going to know when we have crossed the threshold of where the of where the costs outweigh the benefits of taking an incremental action with respect to AI? No, that's right. And even if you allocate those costs, you'll have bargains around those allocations. So if you say like we're going to charge Google, uh, Google's just going to pass the cost through when you buy a Waymo enabled vehicle, right? And so this is a University of Chicago thing, right? But it's you know people will bargain around. Uh, whatever allocations of responsibilities to try to find efficiencies where they can. Um, so it's uh, it's interesting though the the challenge for law and for insurance together is to balance the benefit of the lives you can save with autonomous vehicles, the commerce you can enable with autonomous vehicles against the harms that you could suffer um, that would be uncompensated, right? This might uh, actually be a nice segue into um, your conversation about job losses mm -hmm. because you have a similar kind of risk-reward allocation there. So last week, uh, Tesla announced this new fleet of autonomous trucks yep. um, hitting the road probably in 2019, 2020. Uh, they're already on the road for Uber. So Uber already has auto. It's... Uh, autonomous semi-truck, which has already made deliveries, right? His first delivery was in Colorado, delivering beer. So, you know, over-the-road trucking for me is the canary in the coal mine. Um, how autonomous trucking goes, a lot of other segments of the economy will go. Mm -hmm. And we have this big question, like right up front in this autonomous age, about self-driving trucks. So for 37 states, the most common occupation is truck driver. If you looked at a map of the United States, it covers more than half of the geography of the country. Truck driver is like a huge occupation. There's like you know, 1.4 million to 3 million truck drivers, depending on how you define it. But over-the-road trucking is a huge employer of people in the United States. Those jobs are gone, mm -hmm. gone, right? Maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years. 15 years from now, 
you know, that won't be the most common occupation in any state, right? So you'll have all of these over-the-road rigs that are either minimally occupied or not occupied at all. The economic incentives are too strong for that not to be the truth. Mm-hmm. So five years from now, if you're driving on the interstate, the left lane and maybe the middle lane, if you have three lanes, will be available for driving. The right lane is all going to be autonomous trucks. It's going to be a caravan 10 miles long of autonomous trucks that are going exactly the speed limit, three inches away from each other. And by the way, I don't know structurally how you exit. <laughs> yeah, right. well, well, the cars will be flying, so we can just go over. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but so you know that uh, autonomous trucks don't get tired. Yeah, they don't fall asleep at the wheel. Yeah, they don't do drugs to stay awake. Yeah, uh, they don't have to stop and use the bathroom. Well, hopefully this doesn't mean fewer waffle houses because I would be sorely disappointed. <laughs> but it will be fewer. I know it's houses, terrible. Right? Well, okay, so what? Do, well, what? What do we do about it? Um, it? It's one thing to say in a white collar profession like law, like we talked about. No one's sweating that the the the, no, the doc reviews off their table. There's right. plenty of additional. Now, granted, some lawyers just kind of push paper, right? But in my job, when I used to do corporate deals. I wasted a lot of time, not wasted, but spent a lot of time doing the ministerial tasks that very well could have been algorithmically allocated, but I would have been easily been able to fill up those hours doing more high-value problems. Trucking, it's hard to make that argument for something like trucking where it's kind of a fully saturated market and it's relatively simple and, and the whole market can kind of be captured by the autonomous vehicles. So right. what, what do we, from a policy perspective, what do we do? Yeah. Do, you have a, do you advocate a particular position? I, I don't take a position, but there are options, right? So... Um, the, they run across the spectrum. There are people who say, do nothing, right? The market will sort all of this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who say, um, you can deal with this with law. You can require that there be a person in the truck, even if they're not driving, prepared to take the wheel in the event of an emergency. And by the way, in the short term, maybe not a terrible idea, right? Um, there are people who say, though, you know, what do you do with one4 4 million to 3 million people who suddenly can't find work. It's, you know, no knock to truck drivers. You're not going to make them computer scientists or something, right? It's not like education is going to be some magic panacea that you retrain them to do the jobs of the 21st century, right? I mean, you know, these guys don't remotely have the kind of education or skills to do that job. They probably wouldn't want to do that job, right? So what do you do? There's, There's a big strain of thought right now, I think led by Martin Ford, the economist, saying that you have to consider universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I have to admit the vision is somewhat utopian, but the, the idea is that AI and robotics can help move us from an era of scarcity to abundance, mm-hmm. where people don't have to mortgage their sweat and labor and intellectual capacity in order to basically scrape by to be able to afford to put food on the table for their family, you could move to a world where you don't have to do that much labor to be able to take care of everybody. Um, And so the idea of UBI or universal basic income is that we will all enjoy the benefits of this, but the very small number of companies at the top who enjoy it the most will have some social responsibility back to everybody else, probably through some form of tax that would be distributed among everybody. Um, you know, I, I don't certainly advocate for, for any part of that. UBI seems a little too socialist for me to be very excited about. But I have to confess, I just don't have like a very good answer for what happens to a million people 
you know, a million people in poverty would be a crisis, right? It would be a tragedy. It would be like the Great Depression. And there, you know, there aren't really jobs for them to do. Every once in a while, I'll help people, I'll hear people say, like, look, there are tons of jobs that just go unfilled, right? We just can't find people to take the jobs. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons that H-1B visas are so popular because you need to have people coming in from other countries to fill some of these jobs. But the, the jobs that are going unfilled aren't jobs that we're going to move, like, you know, uh, warehouse laborers or truck drivers into. Mm-hmm. But those jobs are gone. You know, Amazon's warehouse now is almost all robotic. Right. If you look at the auto industry, right, where cars are made, it's all robotic. The Tesla factory has 249 robots that build Teslas. There are people there, but the people are walking around picking up screws and putting them back in the bin <laughs> if the robot drops them. Yeah. Right? Um, Elon Musk has said he could run his entire factory in the dark. They don't need lights because the machines know where everything is down to the nanometer, right? Yeah. The lights are there for PR yeah. so that people don't get freaked out. It's interesting. Well, so and that, that, that raises an interesting issue. That's a segue to maybe the last topic that we should talk about, which is, so yeah, compelling need potentially to have a driver sitting in, that, sitting in the cab of a car to take the wheel. He's you know, probably not going to be terribly stimulated by just sitting doing nothing for hours and hours. And that dovetails with something that is kind of an issue that's near and dear to my heart, which is... What is the impact on everyone in the labor force and lawyers if we have technology doing a lot of the work for us? I mean, do we start to slip? I know when I was a kid, I was great at doing math. Like I, was, I could multiply like three and four digit numbers by each other in my head, no problem. I was super good at it. Now cool. I struggle to calculate a tip. Right. You know, um, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> and a lot of it's in my pocket right now. Right. Um, what, what, are the, what, what, do you, what do you see as the implications of these increasingly powerful technologies on the way we as lawyers do our jobs and our competency level. And I, 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 can, I, see, I see two arguments. I see a lot of people talking about how it'll make us better at our jobs. And I absolutely believe that data-driven decision-making is good. And when that's informed, it's incredibly good. But there is also a lot of kind of manual legwork today that I think was instrumental in developing my judgment facility and getting me to where I felt like I was actually a very, you know, competent lawyer who could offer really good client advice um, that if I was just looking at the answers and had somebody else give me the answers, I'm not sure that would have come about. So Yeah, so this is something I worry about a lot. I've been doing some research into this recently. It's basically boiling the frog, right? Like we rely more and more on these tools that make us more efficient. And they do. And each individual one of these decisions is maybe reasonable in itself, right? You use Google Maps to navigate yourself around. You use the calculator to figure out those three-digit by three-digit computations. Um, You use spell check, Mm -hmm. you know, all the time to make sure you're not making spelling mistakes. But what happens? Like, each one of those things dulls our ability to do those tasks. The repetition keeps us sharp. The reliance on something else to do it for us makes us dull. You know, and even though each one of those decisions individually might be rational, we can sort of rationalize it for ourselves saying my cognitive ability is used for higher uses. It results in a bunch of grown ass people not knowing the difference between TO and TOO. Because spell check says it's correct. Yeah, right. Right? You have people who are constantly lost if they don't have their cell phone because they 
have lost the ability to navigate the world and figure out how to get from one place to another because they have an over-reliance mm -hmm. on this kind of map software. And so that's a big concern of mine. You could have a lot of short-term decisions that are each correct, that are each right, but that through loss of repetition dull our intellect, dull our ability to think of new things or to express ourselves clearly or to do almost anything. We still need to play chess. We still need to do math. We still need to learn basic grammar. Uh, and that will be increasingly important as machines get smarter. Yeah. And what one, one hope that I have for lawyers is that the increased ability of software to do these tasks will be something that we can rely on to a point, but that we maintain those critical thinking skills. We still know how to do math and grammar. And um, we can focus more on the human parts of this, the human parts of representing clients and solving their problems. Our scope can go beyond like billing hours and creating documents, right? And more to actual human empathy, you know, to being able to help in other ways. There's this lawyer um, in uh, Arizona named Billy Tarasio. She's a family lawyer. And she found that she was doing the same 20 forms over and over again. And so what she said was, um, I'm sick of it, right? I don't want to keep doing these forms. So I'm going to make these forms fillable using document automation, right? And I'm just going to put them on my website. And my business is going to drop off of a cliff, but I don't care. I don't want to do these forms anymore, mm -hmm. right? And so she did. And what happened was actually the opposite, right? She thought that her business was going to drop off of a cliff. It almost doubled. And what she found was um, her clients would call her after filling out the documents. And they would say, okay, Billy, I fill out the form. Um, when do we meet? And she would say, we don't need to meet. Just take the form and submit it to the court. And they would say, well, we're not done. And she would say, no, no, you are done. You're done. Just submit the form to the court. And they said, no, I'm not done. I need to tell my story. I need to have the validation of a lawyer who's going to stand by me in this process. So what Billy thought she was selling was hours and forms. And she came to realize when she automated the forms that what she was really selling was something completely different. She was selling empathy. She was selling human compassion. She was selling the idea that when you hire a lawyer, you're no longer facing your problems alone. You are standing shoulder to shoulder with someone who can be your guide, who can help you. There's nothing in the world as a client like when a lawyer says, hey, you know what? I've seen worse, right? It's not going to be that bad. Here's what you do next, right? Here's how this goes. And there's no amount of you know, uh, document automation or robot lawyering that is going to replace that. And so my hope is that you know, these tools, as they get better, won't dull us, but they will heighten our sense of what's human about us. I, I couldn't agree with that more in my own practice history as an M&A lawyer. When you're negotiating a deal, sometimes you learn, or actually you learn, when you, I think when you get more senior, it's not always about where you land. It's about whether the parties have buy-in to get there and they understand why they need it. So sometimes it's not just about getting to the right result, but it's making sure that the client feels like, oh, my values are reflected in this document. What I need is here. The other side needs is here. And 
And that's what you really need to do. It sounds a lot like to me that you need a law of robots course that's cross-listed into the philosophy department. Because <laughs> it sounds like maybe the, uh, the medium is the message here in terms of these things. Maybe, maybe there's something innately human and important about experiencing certain, you know, what we think of today as drudgery, but in fact is part of the very important. It's not always about where we're going or what the right result is. That's a great insight. So, you know, the whole idea of artificial intelligence was that you would achieve the outcome of human thoughts but by a different means. And I think what you're saying is that the means are important, right? It, it is as much about the journey as it is about the destination. And so maybe the idea that we have machines that can reach the same outcomes by different means might really call out and highlight the cognitive roots that human minds take getting there. And we can focus on the importance and value in that. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, it's, it's time for us to wrap up. Ed, one last question for you. If our listeners have questions about the topics we've been exploring or would be interested in learning more about the law of robots or FastCase or any of the many other projects you have a hand in, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, you can find information about FastCase at FastCase.com. Uh, I think the best way to channel my geekery for me is through Twitter. Uh, you can find me at EJ Walters, where you'll find insights about law of robots and legal research and artificial intelligence and whiskey and LSU football. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, and thank you listeners for tuning in. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode or any other topic relating to associate development or legal tech and innovation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out through our blog at blacklinesandbillables.com, email us at podcast at blacklinesandbillables.com, find us on LinkedIn or Facebook under Black Lines and Billables, or tweet at us. Our handle is at BNB Legal, at BNB Legal. We'll be back again soon with our next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>